LPP Podcast. I'm Zach Rhodes, and I'm here with the creator of the program, Dr. Stanton Peel. Welcome, Stanton. Good morning, Zach. For new listeners or people who want to get caught up, the Life Process Program is an online, non-12-step program which offers education, guidance, and coaching to those with addiction-related problems or to those whose friends and loved ones need help with addiction-related problems. And at LPP, we understand, of course, that addiction is not related only to drugs or alcohol. Addiction is a life experience that it can occur within a range of behaviors and involvements. Gambling, sex, pornography, and love addictions are common examples of the kinds of involvements people identify with when joining the program. We're going to use our time today to respond to a frequently asked question. Namely, is the life process program trauma-informed? Trauma-informed is a fairly new term used to describe organizations or therapeutic programs that have the capacity to work with people who have lived through traumatic life experiences and who can't seem to kick the residual effects of those experiences in order to make progress in some areas of life. So I think there are two major questions here, and we'll land on some sort of an answer to both of them. The first question really is, does LPP use some sort of trauma therapy or, let's say, trauma-informed therapeutic model in working with people with addictions? The second question I think we can dig out of that is more generally, probably more importantly, does LPP offer help to people who feel that their traumatic experiences beset them? So let's try to work our way through that. I think we should probably define our terms first. Would you like to set the table with anything more than that, or do you think that's an okay place to start? I think that's good. And of course, we're going to ask the more general question, which is, what is the best therapy in cases of what might be called trauma, or for addiction, or for problems in general. But what is trauma? Uh, I mean, I guess just let's give a potted definition of trauma and maybe what trauma therapy is in, in objective terms. Four days ago, a report was issued by a national panel on depression during and after pregnancy, which is called perinatal, P-E-R-I, natal depression. Mm-hmm. And the task force of experts was convened to evaluate what was known about the factors that led to perinatal depression and what were the best therapies for it. And this is regarded as one of many things which people tend to think of perinatal depression as being epidemic in the United States. The article in the Times by Pam Mellick starts out by saying as many as one in seven women experience depression during pregnancy or in the year after giving birth. And that's, uh, that's distinguished between the normal range of emotions that new mothers uh, before and after pregnancy feel. They're trying to say, well, we don't refer to normal anxieties or bad moods. And nonetheless, 15% of women display this right. condition, right. which is, you know, something to worry about just for starters. And the condition increases a woman's risk of becoming suicidal or harming her infant, as well as having a bad birth outcome. So they first evaluated the risk factors. And here are the risk factors they identified. A personal or family history of depression, recent stresses like divorce or economic strain, 
traumatic experiences like domestic violence, others are symptoms that don't by themselves constitute depression, but enhance it being a single mother, a teenager, low income, lacking a high school diploma, or having an unplanned or unwanted pregnancy. So that if I were to throw it back to you, would you say that these are descriptions of trauma? That That's sort of part of the, the trouble. What counts as trauma? You know, what what has to happen that's bad enough to count as trauma? But what you listed there were some reasonable, if obvious, ideas about what could be happening in life, especially if a woman is experiencing childbirth, that could put them in a situation to fare worse than somebody who wasn't in those. So, yeah, I think all of those things, including being a single mother, having a kid, being a teenager, poor, uneducated, I would say yes. Those All of those things are somewhat... We are, we are distinguishing the scale that's very famous is called ACE scale, Adverse yep. Childhood Events, and it tends to be focused on things that happened in childhood, which could include divorce, but... Now they're looking, obviously, at adult women who are pregnant. Yes. And I, I think about these risk factors in terms of uh, ACE events. A personal family history of depression, well, that's that's not an event. Although conceivably, it could show up in ACE if you were born into a family with mental illness. Recent stresses like divorce or economic strain are not ACE events. They're adult life bad events. Traumatic experiences like domestic violence, that's the only time they use the word trauma. Obviously, domestic violence, obviously traumatic. It's not an ace, though, because it's an adult that's having that experience. And that this is, of course, going to get us back to what do we think about as counselors or coaches in the life process program. Of course, Of course, you would never ignore any of these signs, and certainly domestic violence. Um, And then the things that you were going over, being a single mother, a teenager, low income, lacking a high school diploma, or having an unplanned or unwanted pregnancy, those are traumatic, but there is thinking of them as a traumatic event, the best way either to understand them as an individual therapist or counselor or coach, or is the best way to think about them, approaching them as a society? We're landing in the same area that I was trying to get us to. Let me put it this way. Um, another question could be, is there a useful distinction to be made between adverse experiences in life that we call traumatic and adverse experiences in life which we do not? I guess that's really the crux of, of what we're asking. And And you seem to be saying that those things that you mentioned are life experiences, is it really worth calling them traumatic um, in some well, way that we focus on? other variables in, of course, childhood versus adult. And adverse experiences that are persistently due to your social environment, mm-hmm. rather than, I mean, you think of a trauma as being, well, being raped is a trauma. Right. Being beaten up or assaulted is a trauma. Right. We're going to events versus experiences. Right. Adverse childhood events. Right as opposed to conditions that persist that are very hard, that a therapist is going to have a hard time remedying, um, being a single mother, a teenager, 
low income, lacking high school diploma. Those are things that we do address in life process program. We address education, we address relationships, but they're not an adverse event. They're an adverse condition stemming from a long-term approach to life that that individual has, or looked at in a broader network, things that happen in society at large, or that happen particularly frequently in specific groups in society. So there are people who are living otherwise fine and good lives who have extreme events happen to them. And then there are people who have ongoing adverse experiences in their lives in which events that are traumatic possibly are nested. And so I guess what we're saying is that broadening our scope to sorting out a person's life or sorting out one's life is perhaps the most practical way forward. And I, I wouldn't use the word event. I'd use the word condition. The life process program talks about your life, your involvement in life. These are things that should be addressed. Obviously, there's somewhat complicated and cumulative things to address. Like, if you don't have a high school diploma, your therapist isn't going to cure that in one session or five or ten sessions. Your coach can become kind of a consultant with you to enhance that chance for you to do better to have a school experience or to get a job. And that is therapeutic in the life process sense. But again, thinking of that as a trauma, it, it just doesn't seem like the most economical or meaningful or even the best way to think about it in terms of directing your therapeutic or your self-change efforts. Now, this United States Preventive Task Force, they evaluated different ways to reduce depression among pre- and postnatal mothers and especially who had the most potentially adverse long-term living conditions. Um, you just went over some of those. And the research showed, I'm not, I can't remember if you just said this, but that the recommended course of action for people, mothers in this case, with depression and these experiences in their lives, there are things that we address extensively in our program. The two major areas of help that they identified were cognitive sorts of therapies and modalities like helping people create healthy and supportive environments for themselves and people around them and helping people navigate their own skill sets, including coping skills and social skills and conflict management. And by the way, one of the obstacles of people accessing this kind of therapy um, has been cost. And I hope it's not imprudent to say this or, or out of place, but in our program, the LPP, the, the monthly rate equals an average cost per session for similar therapies. And that's that's not a sales pitch as much as it is a plug for the practicality and affordability of the kind of help one can receive by, by entering a, a program like ours. Life process program, in a way, it almost sounds banal. It's mm-hmm. sort of saying, what are the things that are going to help you to progress in life? And what we perceive is that in our worlds, a ton of magical solutions are thrown out there. If you can only un- identify... Uh, a specific traumatic event that you'll be improved or cured. What we instead, we think in such practical common sense terms, we say, well, you're going to have better outcomes with depression, with raising your child, with addictive issues, if you deal better with life. You talked about the findings. Let me talk about this panel. It's recognized experts with no axe to grind, whose job was to evaluate what the research shows. And I want to just talk about what they considered. The panel evaluated research on numerous possible prevention methods, including 
physical activity, infant sleep advice, yoga, expressive writing, omega-3 fatty acids, and antidepressants. Several showed some promise, including physical activity and programs in Britain and the Netherlands, I should point out, this is an international study, involving home visits by midwives or other providers. So they counted everything, including antidepressants. They found something's promising that you and I and everybody would say, well, these can't be bad, like physical activity and home visits by pregnant women or women who've just given birth. Mm -hmm. But as you said, the only two things that were actually shown to be effective were cognitive behavioral therapy, helping women navigate their feelings and expectations to create healthy, supportive environments for their children. And the other involved interpersonal therapy, including coping skills and role-playing exercises to help manage stress and relationship conflict. So they considered the whole plethora of things out there, including drugs, and they came up with role-playing exercises to help manage stress. What's What's that sound like? That sounds like, well, why don't you and I go through a situation where your child's screaming or acting in a way that you can't deal? Uh, and maybe if the, their child who's capable of talking, one of, you can say what the child's acting like, and then let's talk through how you might deal with it. Is there anything that could be more down-to-earth or pragmatic or practical than that? What we're trying to capture in the Life Process Program or in any effective therapy is ways for you to manage your emotions and your skill set to deal with situations like that. And of course, you know, hearkening back, you're a person who works with parents and teachers and children who sometimes blow a gasket <laughs> on the one hand. And on the other hand, sometimes they have long-term difficulties mm -hmm. fitting into a classroom or adjusting to their school life or family life. And you're a, your job is to go in there and deal with them at a level where they can now learn some skills and ways of looking at the world, both the adults and the child, that allows them to navigate those situations. So these, these, these methods that work with perinatal depression, I think would ring a strong bell with you. Oh, absolutely. You know, we might have a slightly different take on this. I'm not sure. Um, but. You know, I've worked in schools that consider themselves trauma-informed. And of course, like you said, at the end of the day, when I consider what is the best course of action, or I guess when I should, I should say, when I work with a child and the team around him or her to determine what the best course of action moving forward could be, it always ends up being the most practical, um, at risk also of sounding banal, as you mentioned. So I ask all the time people who work on task force in school, people who are administrators in schools, what it means even to be trauma-informed. And I get two basic answers. One just means to be trauma-informed is having uh, the competence to address a, a wide range of problems that people bring to the table from experiences that are, you know, they range from severe and destructive to benign in an immediate, uh, you know, in, in an immediate sense. But the possibility of somebody coming to me, with such a range of experiences, I believe, is, is implied in their needing or wanting to work with me to ameliorate a problem. Same thing with life process programs. Somebody comes to the program to sort out 
some sort of an addiction or something going on in their lives. So it seems like the useful tools and models for responding to any given problem in that range is already nested in a framework of practicality. Uh, but let, let me throw in here, among yeah. the things that you're required to be aware of and report, mm-hmm. as either a coach or a counselor, or in your work at schools, if a child is being abused, physically or sexually, of course. you have an obligation to be aware of that and report that. So that could be one version of trauma-informed. If you have a reason to feel that a child is harming themselves, possibly with drugs, you also have an obligation to put a red flag up. So that's at one extreme. Those are imminent danger or assaultive experiences. Okay, so that first of all, that yes, I have to completely grant that. It's funny because we came into this talk and I wanted to make sure that I was uh, being completely charitable across the board. And I think we may have switched roles here because those things existed and were true before I had ever heard the term being trauma informed or having uh, trauma sensitivity or whatever it, it is. Uh, we've always had to report signs of abuse and things like that to um, state departments and etc. There is this, um, you know, my, my fear of throwing a label on it that's called trauma-informed is that there is a more extreme kind of definition of the concept, which is that trauma-informed really means that clinicians or members of an organization use some sort of model or diagnostic criteria, even tacitly, to to identify and respond to people's traumas and, and use a technique that's specific to trauma, you know, with a person who who fits that category. And this all sounds fine, but we do have to ask the question. I'll ask it of you. What are the risks involved with relying on this kind of a model? Well, I'm glad you asked. Um, <laughs> trauma-informed, so trauma-informed, by you're pointing out, what does that mean exactly? I mean, it means going from one end of reporting things to the other end of, of looking at everything as though it were caused by trauma and that influences your entire approach to therapy. Mm. And those are two very different kinds of things. And it points out for me that there really is no therapy associated with being trauma informed. Being, if, if that means being aware of what people's dangers are, that's one thing. But if trauma-informed means that you're now going to focus your therapy on recognizing and explicating and discussing that event, that has been disproven as being an effective form of therapy. Of course, it harkens back, of course, to psychoanalysis and the idea that things go back to a childhood individual event uh, or experience that causes you to whatever, you mm-hmm. know, be neurotic or fear interpersonal relationships or uh, being unable to go outside of the house. And we've learned that that's not in and of itself a therapy. Right. And knowing about those things can be more or less useful. But the idea is that you have to be forward-looking in order to learn new skills and outlooks to be able to cope with that, That, which is a description of what they found works with perinatal depression and of cognitive behavior therapy. I just want to read, this is from an article by, I, I know we're just finishing a book, putting to bed a book called 
outgrowing addiction with common sense instead of disease therapy. We referred a lot to Martin Seligman and his colleagues' work in positive mm. psychology. Right. And now I'm just reading from something he wrote with John Tierney. While most people tend to be optimistic, those suffering from depression and anxiety have a bleak view of the future. And that, in fact, seems to be the chief cause of their problems, not their past traumas. While traumas do have a lasting impact, I'm reading from them, most people, Tierney and Seligman, most people actually emerge stronger afterwards. Others continue struggling because they overpredict failures and rejection. And so what they're saying is actually focusing on trauma, hyper-injecting it with its impact on your life, saying, well, I've had, I've had this trauma, and as some people say, that's modified my brain so that I'm permanent, I have a permanent disease, is an actual predictor of worse outcomes mm -hmm. rather than learning ways of dealing with the future that are going to be more successful and being optimistic that you're going to succeed at that. So two things going on here. First, before the Seligman quote you just read, we sort of have this problem. Events themselves are nested in an overall experience or life. So two is some sort of trauma therapy would be the things that work about it would be nested in an overarching grander therapy that allows people to access channels of life. But this is saying something a little bit deeper, isn't it? It's saying that not only that, but if you are to look back with a negative outlook on what, on what happened in the past and you, and you want to uh, cling to that, talk about that, study that, that actually has proven less fruitful outcomes than figuring out a way to be optimistic about your story in the future. Yes. Encouraging optimism mm -hmm. and Hope, hopefulness is the best predictor, according to, to Seligman, of being able to proceed with life along with actually learning skills that enable you to do that. And so then the question is, how does one inspire hopefulness? That does come back to the practical outline of skills, resources, you know, social involvements, a sense of community and purpose. And I think one thing that would be true is you wouldn't emphasize negative experiences. Mm. You wouldn't say to people, oh, well, look how bad your life has been. I mean, you can't, obviously, you can't ignore, as we said before, ongoing abuse. You can't ignore horrible events. But the danger is, and as we said, the more things that you look, the more you look for trauma, the more likely you are to label things as being traumatic, mm -hmm. the greater the likelihood that you'll find and emphasize those kinds of things. A big distinction to be made between whether or not it's useful to uh, acknowledge somebody's negative feelings about the past versus whether or not it's useful to focus somebody in on negative feelings about the past. Of course, you have to acknowledge people's experiences. That's just part of what it means to be a reasonable clinician. But if, insofar as a clinician is driving any part of the therapy, they're going to run people into a brick wall, driving it backwards in thought rather than trying to get north yes. of indifference i i guess what you're saying is in school everybody says to you i don't know are you trauma informed it's almost like an identity badge right something you have to be it's right. remarkable the degree to which oh, not this expert panel which is international in nature um they're not sure 
they're not preoccupied that way. But here in the United States, in large part, that's now become considered to be the basis of therapy, locating and finding and explicating and emphasizing people's trauma. That's see, although everybody talks about cognitive behavior therapy, which points in an entirely opposite direction. The therapy I feel I hear most about is is trauma-based therapy. I, I want to make a clinical footnote here. I, I'm thinking about some of the people I know will be listening to this. Um, I'm just going to cite the work of uh, Dr. Bruce Perry. He wrote a book with Maya Solovitz called Boy, The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog. Now I'm going to have to look that up. I think that's the name. Um, and people sometimes refer to his work. I think that um, they do so sometimes misunderstanding his work. He, Bruce Perry developed a framework called the neurosequential model of therapeutics. And what he does is just lay out in objective terms, only insofar as he could possibly know on a physiological level, what happens to people both when extreme events happen to them in their lives and what happens to people in an immediate sense, when when they have extreme traumatic events happen to them throughout the course of their lives, and that's it. That's all it is, his neurosequential model of therapeutics. I'm, I'm addressing this, I know I'm a little off script, but a lot of people refer to his work and say, well, what do you say about the, the, the greatest trauma therapy, you know, creator of all time? He didn't create a, a, a trauma therapy. Um, okay, sorry. Well, that, no, I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, the data on effective processing of traumatic events is entirely consistent with the data on effective psychotherapy. Mm. And it's forward-looking, it's pragmatic, it's coping skills-oriented, it's rehearsal-oriented, it's dealing with the practical aspects of life, it's future-oriented, it's outcome-oriented, it's optimistic. And being aware of trauma even to the extent of medical problems and possible psychiatric and neurological impacts doesn't change any of that. What makes for the best progress forward remains the same. And so it's it's looking in the wrong ballpark for what you have to do to help people. You and I first spoke because I sought you out after <laughs> attending a training led by Gabor Mate. And Gabor Mate is a famous doctor and author, and by all accounts, he seems to be a caring person and has even done, as you've mentioned, heroic sorts of harm reduction work and probably saved a lot of lives throughout his medical practice. His claim he, to- he was famous for being the medical do- doctor at the Insight program in Vancouver, yes. which dealt with people who gravitated there as drug addicts who were really completely uncared for people and mm-hmm. he provided medical care for them and that was his subject base right in developing his trauma-based view of addiction right that's his claim to fame is his book in the realm of hungry ghosts in which he asserts that and, and a few other books i think but he asserts that all people with addictions have these problems because of trauma in their lives and he goes further saying that childhood trauma is involved in a kind of remapping of brain chemistry that can create addictive behaviors. And the reason I sought you out when I came back from that training is because it it rubbed me the wrong way. I wasn't buying it. My opinion was, this is a guy with a robust understanding of addiction, and he knows what it means to take care of people, but 
that all the while he's smuggling in a wrong-headed theory that hides in plain sight. It's a theory that I think is, and I, I know you agree, destined to do more harm than good in the long run. So as I often do, I scoured the web for any literature after this training from people who disagree with him to see if I could you know, balance their takes. Uh, you had two pieces in psychology today about this. You were the only person in the world who, who was able to draw lines, who had the guts to speak up about drawing lines between Gabor as a person and Gabor as a theorist, and, and to call out some of his worst ideas. Um, could you maybe go over what you wrote in, in those articles? I'm 73. In 1984, I had a piece that defended behavioral therapy when there was a mass witch hunt mm. against harm reduction approaches with alcoholism, which are now mainstream. I don't know if I would go so far as to say they're dominant. Harm reduction meaning abstinence isn't the be-all and end-all, but protecting people is what our main goal needs to be. And during that period of my life, I received assaultive emails from people who were practicing 12-step therapy saying, it saved my life, you're a murderer, things like that. And that's... If you look at my mailbox now, I, I get—I don't get many of those anymore. That's gradually petered out. But what I do get is mail from people, and I think maybe we'll have a chance to read one. Mm-hmm. Not by far, far from the worst. Uh, saying the same thing now around not recognizing that trauma is the basis of all addiction and other problems. And that identifying people would say, well, I went to AA and it saved my life. Yeah. And now people say, well, uh, finding my trauma or Gabor Mate's books telling me to do that. That's what saved my life. So you're now facing that kind of experience. And even though the data on actual therapeutics point in a completely different direction. And so. Once again in my life, I find that I'm out of step. And I didn't realize that. I, it was, I was slow to become aware that we had gone from the dominance of the 12-step disease model to the trauma disease model. And here's one way that I went wrong, um, which I've written about also in Psychology Today. Um, there was a time when ritual child abuse was the hottest topic in America in the 1980s. Right. And a number of schools reported that counselors at the schools had abused children in the most egregious, sickening ways, in some cases saying that they were killing them. And then a strange thing happened. It's almost unbelievable in the 1990s, in the 1980s, uh, in the McMartin School, these things are called multi-victim, multi-offender child abuse cases. This is the most unbelievable case. It was brought against caretakers at the McMaster School. It was a criminal trial in California. It lasted six years, the longest U.S. criminal trial in history, at a cost of $15 million, the most expensive criminal trial in history. And at the end of six years, everybody was found not guilty. Mm-hmm. 
And it was only then in the 1980s that people came to realize that directing people's thinking towards horrible, traumatic events actually had the effect of enhancing their likelihood of believing those events and finding those events. Since that time, and since um, investigators have learned not to say everything is traumatic and to burrow into seeking trauma, there hasn't been a single multi-victim, multi-offender case in the United States for the last 25 or so years. And yet, to a remarkable extent, it seems almost as though at a lower level, dealing with people who are generally ostensibly not severely debilitated, we're applying that same therapeutic method as, as a primary care technique in America. Do you see that taking place? And I know you've interviewed people who, like Carol Tavis, who were very aware of these kinds of dynamics. Sure. And what Carol said, you know, interestingly, she wrote about this in her book about cognitive dissonance. Uh, mistakes were made, but not by me. And uh, she sort of describes this territory, this job of a communicator that you're occupying, where you're looking at the history and you're looking at statistics. And you're what you're trying to say is stop before it gets worse. Um, this is what the data says. You know, recently I also spoke with Johan Hari. Um, I'm writing an article about his, one of his books called Lost Connections, and he said, he put it pretty brilliantly, and he said he was remembering thinking that antidepressants were going to be definitely the best the best resource for his depression. Um, he doesn't believe that now, and he said, I might mess it up, but it, it's nice having a story for your pain, even if the story is not totally true, because it's sort of like you're around a, a, a dog that that is wild and, and might attack, but the dog's on a leash. So somehow communicators like you, me, and anybody else that wants to get ahead of the curve in terms of what's true, we're walking this tightrope where we have to tell people that the story that they have occupied for their pain is not is not totally right. It has the it has the effect of seeming it could seem insensitive. So yes, I've I've definitely I'm I'm always navigating this trajectory where I have to be careful of what I say and to whom I say it. So that's why when you get all these letters, it, it makes me sad because people believe actually what you're doing is being a contrarian for the sake of being a contrarian or that you haven't thought this thing through fully. And of course, I know with certainty that's not the case. And I'm hoping people listening now will know that's not true. Well, a, a positive therapist is somebody who encourages somebody's optimism gives them a forward orientation, helps them to develop skills to go forward, at the same time responds to their needs and their felt hurts, but doesn't is able to reorient them away from those things, in a, as we said, in a forward positive direction. And that that requires, I don't know if it's fair to say, two separate sets of skills, mm. but it certainly requires a well-rounded individual. I think you're an example of somebody who has it. You don't, you, I, and I've seen you work with children and, and with adults. You're not in the job of disparaging their previous efforts or their ways of thinking. At the same time, you need to 
your job is to help them deal more effectively and to think more positive with their lives and to think more positively about themselves. And can you describe how you balance those two things on a fulcrum? Well, the only real way to do it is to listen deeply to people's experiences. And in a collaborative effort, all I try to do is make the most sense I can and ask the most pointed questions I can to allow me to understand where the person is, whether it's somebody that I'm helping or somebody that I'm trying to explain something to or educate. Um, because that's wherever a person is in, in terms of their skills or abilities or problems, you can't starting from prior to that point or starting beyond that point is is a fool's errand so really that's it i just i i try to figure out by letting people tell me where they are what their problems are and then i sort of play a collaborative role where i I play the part of the environment that that person will have to contend with in a therapeutic sense i mean so it's like if a person is feeling like they can't make it to class and they're having problems with that that's just like the kids i work with then I'll start asking them questions about why that's so in a, you know, in a fair so environment. So you respect their, what you do is respect their point of view. You honor their point of view. You enter into their point of view. If they're feeling hurt or neglected, you are able to be on their side at the same time that you don't encourage them to carry out acts or you have them reorient their actions in a way that makes it less likely that those things are going to occur in the future. That's right. And to do that, there is a certain level of consistency you have to uphold and truth you have to uphold about the sorts of obstacles they might run into, objectively speaking. So, you know, maybe there is a mandate for for them to come to school, and so we're not going to ignore that. That's something they have to face. How are we going to do it? So it's teaching also the the skills or trying to figure out which skills might be needed in order to contend with the problems that they'll face in the future. So I, I, I want to harken back to two things I mentioned at the beginning. One is this panel on perinatal depression. Their job is to look at all the systematic research, which compares different ways of helping and treating people to find what is effective. And that's one way to go. That's how medicine typically is able to come up with therapies. Mm. They say, well, this drug or treatment we give it to one group and another group we give nothing or a different one and we see who has the best outcomes that kind of research is critical to advancing the whole 12-step movement is based on a rather small group of people it's really only about uh 10 to 20 percent of people who ever receive a disease therapy and of that group only a small percentage find it to be a a 12-step therapy to find be effective, but that group is extremely adamant and believes that their treatment is successful. And in a way, you can say, fine, if that worked for you, that's great. But when that group then applies its feelings to the rest of the world, then we have a problem. So right. I just want to read, this is far from the worst email I received. It's just sent to my personal email box. Stanton, I and many friends are recovering alcohol addicts. We also have ADHD and RSD. We all agree Gabor Mate saved our lives. Addiction is pain medicine. I have worked with enough addicts to have confirmed this. So she's saying, well, look, these are the people I know, and they all say this is true. Right. To hell with 
research panels that evaluate all the evidence. Many have complex PTSD, most from their terrible childhoods. No one would choose to be an addict and suffer the shame, loneliness, and humiliation unless their emotional pain was unbearable. I agree with you in as much as PTSD can occur later in life from trauma of war, for example, and the individual has to self-medicate. I guess she's saying that's her writing being open to me in saying, well, what about the people who went to Vietnam and became addicted to heroin and then came home over 90% of whom ceased their addiction? So she's saying, well, they developed PTSD at war, but that's not what I'm saying. Right. Well, we're, what we're saying something different about that experience. We're saying that they entered a traumatic set of events, which was unavoidable. In some cases, these are unavoidable. I mean, if you end up in a war, if you end up in an impoverished situation, and yet, as uh, in Martin Seligman, if you're removed from that situation, if you're able to be helped to go beyond that situation, you outgrow it. You can outgrow it. So you can actually be improved by it. I've recently written a piece about a Russian doll, which describes the life of Natasha Lyonne in a fictional situation. She almost died of a heart infection when she was injecting heroin in her 20s. And that's a Netflix series that describes her kind of reliving her life. She's been in rehab. She doesn't use the word 12-step. She doesn't abstain from substances. She never uses the word trauma. Instead, it's a, a matter of reliving life in a way that presents her with greater connection and positive experiences and engaging with people in a positive way. It's a whole different model, and it's remarkable. I wrote about it recently in the online publication, The Filter, it's remarkable how people see that series and interpret some actually as a lauding the 12 steps, which aren't mentioned at all, or as an explication of trauma theory. So anyhow, we're back to your writing me at home. Yeah, and so far she said that first Gabor Monte has saved people's lives. I know it because I, I've seen it happen. And then she's saying that, listen, I'll throw you an olive branch. I get what you're saying about war vets who have come back and have experienced distress in adulthood. Uh, and so, okay, I think you're going to read the rest, which I think she's saying. And, and she, but however, the percentage is so low in comparison with those who were addicted because of childhood trauma. Now, how did she decide that? If you go back to the original research that Gabor Mate points out, the number of people who become addicted to heroin is quite small. The number of people with three or more adverse childhood events who develop an alcohol abuse problem is around 18%, which is high. But the, the ones who have who develop alcohol abuse without that is not that far different. It's about 10%. So it nobody thinks those events, especially as they persist in somebody's life, is good. But nonetheless, quite a large majority emerge from those experiences without becoming addicted or alcoholic. And it, all, it enhances it only a finite amount. And of course, since so many more people don't have three or more ACE events... The actual number of people that you'll encounter who are addicted or alcoholic, to use that term, is going to be far larger for those without those childhood events. Mm. And her sampling is based on who she works with. God bless her. She may be working with highly traumatized populations. God mm. bless her. But there's a basis for having all of this research to kind of get a feel of what the universe looks like, other than the people who come into your office because of the those specific circumstances. 
she gets a little more abusive towards me now. The light Gabor has shown on the root causes of addiction to mental disorders surpasses anything anyone else has said. Now, it goes without saying she's not citing any research or any outcomes that say this. There really is no treatment embodied in uh, the ghost book. It's not about treatment. It's about, and she doesn't describe any treatment. The light Gabor has shown on the root causes of addiction and mental disorders surpasses anything anyone else has said. Okay, now we get to the part where she insults me. People don't write a personal email if they don't intend to abuse me. (laughs) A good story has conflict, right? If you are a recovering addict, then your opinion is worth something. If you are not a recovering addict, then please shut up because you have no clue what you were speaking about. Of course, Gabor himself is not a quote-unquote addict. Uh, He has... uh... He had an addiction to purchasing CDs and records and things like that, but certainly that's not what this this writer means. Well, that's a really uh, you and I work on these these things together. Well, you don't call yourself a recovering addict, but you had that experience, right? I have an experience like what she she's trying to explain. You must have, right? Yeah, you're you're somebody who she couldn't tell to shut up on that basis, right? Um, <laughs> do you, you do want to mention it briefly or? Well, sure. I don't mind mentioning it at all. I I had an addiction to heroin. I don't know if that's even the best way to say it, Uh, but clearly there was an addiction experience. You know, I I used heroin and other opiates despite the terribly destructive consequences they had in my seemingly otherwise okay life. Ameliorating that was more about trying to get my full act together in all domains of life rather than trying to recover from any particular experience or experiences. I wouldn't even be able to name experiences that I was recovering from without explaining all of the things in life that I had to grow into. So, I mean, you and I would both agree that your past is your prologue, that your life experiences, as opposed to you have a sister and two parents and none of them are drug addicts or alcoholics. So it's hard to say, well, it's genetic. There was something about your experience that led you in this direction. But what you and I would say about your life is that you you weren't an obviously traumatized person. I mean, you had a solid family upbringing. You were given a lot of opportunities, and those are good things. And they, you might say, well, those are things that enabled you eventually to get beyond your addiction. You certainly, um, you were part of a healthy family, and you joined a healthy family. You're married, and by the way. You have a daughter who's less than... I think six months old, she was being born at the same time as we wrote this book. And those are positive predictors for an outcome. Nonetheless, you entered a destructive drug addiction, which is as bad as they came. You had a point of being hospitalized for having a mixture of fentanyl and heroin that could have easily killed you, but you got better. And now you're, you know, more or less a positive, reasonable human being with a good job that people turn to for help, with a solid family, and you refuse to describe yourself as either having had a traumatic childhood or as being an addict, a lifetime addict, or as having PTSD. Allow me to add to that. That wasn't always true. It, it was a quick shift between me deciding that I must have had some sort of trauma and that I didn't. It just was a matter of thinking about it, going to that training and reaching out to you. But when I first 
I was reading Gabor's book. Actually, I, I thought, okay, I guess that. Let me let me see if I can dive into my past and let me see w- what I can produce here. And actually, I was sort of a victim of this experience. I started doing TV and and podcast interviews just about child development, and I was talking to a developmental specialist. Her name's Robin Plouffe, and I was talking about how I must have suffered sorts of traumatic experiences in childhood. And I remember showing my parents this interview that I was doing, saying, hey, cool, huh? And not even realizing that to them, they thought of that as me saying, oh, we did something terrible to you, or or you think that we didn't love you, or, or something like that. That's what snapped me out of it. Um, and I can imagine somebody slightly more suggestible, which people don't, I'm not usually accused of being suggestible, uh, not, not making that realization that I did. There, I actually know people who are musicians, or we work with somebody uh, who's uh, in, in developing a manual for parents, Dr. Noriko Martinez. Mm-hmm. There are people who still are not part of the um, trauma world, who have a natural feeling that focusing on trauma and negativity isn't the best way forward, who don't search their past for the worst things that have happened to them, who imagine problems as things that they're capable of overcoming. They're naive subjects out there. And to me, where at one point in my life, I sort of thought, well, that's how most people were. To a large extent now, I see the therapy world as having been converted away from what I not only consider to be good common sense, but which has been demonstrated by the effectiveness of therapy. And again, I talk about the uh, perinatal depression panel. The data all point in that direction. The um, Martin Seligman data all point in that direction. And yet we've undercut both common sense and what good therapy indicates, which is what we practice in the Life Process Program and what our book, which is, Lord willing, coming out in May, Outgrowing Addiction, try to get our attention back towards. Um, And you have the advantage of being able to say, well, you can't tell me to shut up because I've never been addicted. I mean, you have to tell me to shut up for other reasons. You can say you don't like me or you don't like my point of view, but I'm doing something more than just talking about my personal experience. I have read the literature. I am familiar with Martin Seligman's work. I am familiar with the data effectiveness work. And they too tell me that this is the way that I can be the most helpful and positive to the most human being. As we point out in our book, the United States is not doing well in outcomes. Let me just give one example. Um, We now tell people, well, if you're depressed, you must enter therapy and receive antidepressants. Remember, this panel evaluated antidepressants and didn't find them to be worth carrying forward Mm. in regards to uh, perinatal depression treatment. Um, The number of people who are undergoing long-term antidepressant therapy has been multiplying for 50 years, but it's accelerated in the last 20 years. And we've tripled the number of people who are long-term antidepressant therapy. And in that same time, depression has continued to increase. And more remarkably, in the last 20 years, um, suicides have increased by 38%. That's more than a third. And so what we're trying to do, we're trying to make use 
of what has been shown to be the most effective therapies in helping people. And we can point to the fact that recent dominant trends have not been doing that and that we need to really reverse direction in a way, as in the title of our book, Outgrowing Addiction with Common Sense Instead of Disease Therapy, in ways that actually sort of just make good common human sense. Let me ask you a question that I think you just answered, but let me see if I can frame it slightly differently. Let's say trauma theory, as described by Gabor Monte, turned out to be true. If it were, would that change anything about the, the kinds of models that allow people to make progress, do you think? That's a good thing that you asked that question. The data show it's not that most people who undergo what could be called a significant ACE events don't develop addictions. The majority of people who are addicted haven't had those experiences, even though it does elevate the likelihood of that happening. Yeah. But even how would you treat those two groups of people, however large you assess them to be, the non-ACE-caused addictions and the ACE-caused addictions, would you treat either of them differently? Would Is that what trauma-informed means, that, well, we'll have a totally different set of therapy for one group rather than the other? One group will train or help to look at things more positively and optimistically, to be more willing to try and deal with life and give them, help them to develop skills and develop involvements that allow them to do that. But we'd only do that with the non-ACE-caused depressives and addicts. And the answer is, of course, we wouldn't do differently. And you might even say it would be discriminatory if you did. Exactly so. And that's what I was trying to parse at the top of our talk today was let's define trauma. And and now what we're getting to is that if dealing with people with trauma is, is something specific to them, who then gets to decide what is or isn't traumatic? So so that's that's part of the reason we need to open up that conversation. Right. And to some extent, trauma informs. We certainly have both seen examples of it is to convince people that they've been traumatized when they don't think that way about themselves. And when they, even after are presented presented with that, they reject that way of viewing themselves. I'm thinking about my wife right now, who is a professional. She is just a, uh, a sponge for different sorts of theories and models by sticking with principles. She can extract out of these different models of, tra- I guess, what's called trauma therapy or trauma-informed therapy, uh, the things that are useful and apply those to people's lives insofar as people are asking for that kind of help. But all of that stuff maps directly on to everything that you've described and that that task force has described as being the most helpful way forward for people. There are ways to try to accommodate to people's feelings that way. There are ways of dealing with people who think they have a disease who feel they've been traumatized, there are ways of dealing with them and still nonetheless to help guide them in their going positively forward into the future rather than seeing that as a weight and the debacle that they're bearing, an albatross they're bearing around them. Mm-hmm. And as as we said earlier, it's a necessary skill to be able to combine the ability to do that with practicing the kind of therapy that, kind of coaching that we do in the life process program. That's right. My wife probably put it more elegantly than this, but I've learned from her after talking to her about it a lot is that you don't want to go too far in the direction of convincing people that they must look forward either. You don't want to convince anyone 
of anything. You want to talk them through so that they can be true to themselves about what the best way forward is, and, and you act as a guide. I think that's really important. Yeah. I think your gift of a good non-directive counselor, of course, the whole other thing we're talking about is motivational interviewing. That's right. That could be a whole other uh, podcast. Where you're exploring the person's values and inclinations as a way of helping them, allowing them to free themselves to go forward uh, away from an addiction. All of those things are based on self-efficacy. Um, that's the bottom line in motivational interviewing is your faith and your feeling that you can go forward. And it's a non-directive therapy that allows, that help allows you as a coach or a counselor to help direct them to, to believe that based on their own inclinations and feelings and knowledge about themselves and their own value. I feel that's, that's another gift that you have. I believe that I think a lot of our coaches have. Which is, you're not, your job isn't to convince them of one point of view or the other, but it certainly is never your job to make a person more pessimistic or more negative in their outlook about their past or their futures. That's never a coach's or a therapist's job. And we'll, I hope, leave on that positive message in a way that anybody who listens to this can find helpful and constructive, no matter what perspective they're coming from. Let me see if I can summarize the best I can, and I'll give you the last word as well. Um, we posed this question at the top of the interview. Is the Life Process Program, this is the LPP podcast, trauma-informed? And my take on that is that if people think that trauma-informed means what the United States Preventive Task Force think it means, a model that supports people and discovering healthy and supportive environments for themselves and for people around them, and if trauma-informed means helping people take inventory of their skill sets, perhaps strengthening some of those skills, including coping and social skills, managing conflict, if that's what it means to be trauma-informed, then I would say that Yes, the the life process program certainly is, but I, as I wrote to you earlier today, I would say that with a major caveat. If we're going to be moored to that concept, we need to be moored shallowly so that when someone discovers that there are more fruitful channels of life to pursue than, than considering the negative events that have happened to them, that they're ready to, to ride that wave of life experience immediately and fully. Um, Stanton, I'll, I'll give you the last word. Well, I... You know, I couldn't summarize your introduction and your conclusion or where we wanted to go. Um, I hope our back and forth and the different perspectives you and I both bring to this, despite coming from a little bit different corners of the world, uh, I'm a grandfather with grandchildren older than your child, um, gives some reinforcing reality to it. You know, uh, mm. we come to the same construction feeling at it and experiencing at it and reading different literature and having different professions. And yet we come to that same understanding of human successful progress. And I hope that that people find that those reinforcing perspectives to be encouraging and validate the point of view that we share. Stanton, thanks so much for doing this. I could imagine it being in your situation which, you know, I, I run the risk of uh, absorbing some of your hate mail. It's just such an important question, but I, I think that you you could easily come to the table purely on the defensive. It's absolutely not an easy thing to discuss, but we realize the importance of it, and, and yet we pursue this conversation anyway. So I'm hoping that somewhere out there, somebody got uh, an inkling of new information about 
about how to move forward. And as we say in our book, we feel an obligation at least to do our best to describe accurately what's real and what works. Absolutely. And- thanks again, Stanton. And thanks for listening today, folks. My name is Zach Rhodes. I've been speaking with Dr. Stanton Peel. We'll talk again soon on the next episode of the LPP podcast.